Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome once again to the World Economic Forum here in Davos, Switzerland, I'm Julia Chatterley. And powerful words here in Davos today on how the Ukraine war is fueling a worsening global food crisis. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen saying Russia is, quote, weaponizing not only energy supplies, but food supplies too. She believes Europe must begin talks with Russia on getting wheat and other food exports flowing again to make sure global hunger does not worsen. Richard Quest spoke with von der Leyen just a few moments ago, and she says it remains crucially important in the months ahead to keep Europe focused on helping Ukraine while also pushing Europe forward to a more sustainable energy future. Uh, the European population stands very strongly behind Ukraine and is outraged about this brutal invasion. And you should not oversee um, or forget the fact that we have these huge investment packets, next generation EU um, recovery from the pandemic. This is why Europe is standing strong. And many people in Europe also see this opportunity that getting rid of fossil fuels from Russia is a big chance to invest heavily in renewables, so our European Green Deal. And there's so much work to be done now as the global energy and food crisis takes center stage here in Davos. We'll be joined by the head of the World Food Programme, David Beasley, later on in the show. In the meantime, across the world in Tokyo, Ukraine was also at the forefront of discussions on the final day of President Biden's Asia trip. He met with the leaders of Quad Nations, India, Australia and Japan, urging them to make more effort to stop Russia's war on Ukraine. Russia's assault on Ukraine only heightens the importance of those goals, the fundamental principles of international order, territorial integrity and sovereignty, international law, human rights, must always be defended, regardless of where they're violated in the world. So the Quad has a lot of work ahead of us. Caitlin Collins is in Tokyo for us. Caitlin, great to have you with us. There is so much we could talk about, so many pressing issues for these leaders to discuss, including, of course, a new Australian leader. But I think key for me, I look at the statement and I, and I see a, what appears to be a veiled warning to nations like China, don't try and change the status quo. I look at the very brief mention of Ukraine, of course, and the elephant in the room is that India so far has not condemned this war. What progress was made? Yeah, that's been a big question for the White House. And they've tried to handle that delicately when it comes to how India has treated this invasion of Ukraine, because obviously they have been a lot more hesitant to criticize Putin for invading Ukraine than other countries have. They've continued to import oil. They've actually accelerated a lot of their purchases at times. And they haven't even really called it an invasion or a war. And you've seen them stray from that language. And so That really has been a huge focus here, as it was during President Biden's last day in Tokyo when he had a one-on-one meeting 
with the Indian Prime Minister Modi. And you saw the readout later on from the White House. They say that President Biden condemned this invasion when he was speaking with Modi. If you look at the Indian readout, they do not mention the invasion. And so it just really speaks to the huge divide that maybe they're not talking about it publicly as much, but they certainly are aware of it privately. And so this really has been this moment where you've seen such a change in a meeting like this, where typically you would have these meetings with these world leaders. We've seen these quad summits before. This is the first time it's happened ever since, of course, this invasion has happened. And so that's been a big aspect of it. Excuse me, there's a few bugs out here. Uh, and that's in a big aspect of it as well. And so, of course, that has really changed the trajectory of all of these conversations that they've been having. And that's been a big factor into how President Biden is approaching this differently than he would have six months ago. Yeah, but I guess the important point here as well is that they're actually having them and they're physically together, which makes a difference. Caitlin Collins, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, one of the most key highlights of the World Economic Forum so far was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's powerful address to delegates yesterday, imploring world leaders to impose the maximum sanctions possible against Moscow, including a complete ban on Russian oil. Now, Germany's economy minister, Robert Habeck, believes the promised European-wide oil embargo can be agreed on soon. He says getting all of Europe on the same page won't be easy, and we've seen the challenges, but he calls it a moral imperative. Just take a listen. Well, you have to understand the European history, and of course, there are some countries, and Germany is split in between, mm. that rely on that rely more on Russian oil and gas than other countries. So, between Portugal, which has no connection with Russian energy at all, and Hungary, for example, that was signing contracts uh, this, uh, into this crisis. It's a big difference, of course. So, we have to consider that not every country has the same demand and the same possibilities to get a ban on oil. Saying that, of course, there must be a solution. And the worst of Europe is that we talk for ages and don't find a solution. Yeah. But I'm, I'm convinced and I'm sure that we will find a solution within the next days. And I, as I said, I understand and also accept that Hungary, for example, has its own problems to solve, but they have to solve it. What I don't accept is that they say, okay, give us more time and then do what? Nothing. This is unacceptable. So there is a corridor of a solution and... I guess we would see it um, working in the next days. Days or weeks? How quickly can we do this? I hope hours, actually. Hours. But it would be days. <laughs> One can wish. Um, I think the challenge here, and it goes back to what we've already seen in terms of what you've call, called a, a weaponization of energy, is what we've seen from Russia. They've now cut off gas to the Finns. We can argue over why they've chosen to do that. The Finns say it's because they simply wouldn't pay on Putin's terms. We've seen the Poles cut off, the, the Bulgarians cut off the gas. Germany hasn't been. And there's confusion over how Germany, German utilities are paying for gas. Are German utilities engaging in swaps between euro currency and the ruble? Well, we pay, or the German companies, they pay in euros. And then there's a system that Putin invented from my point of view to save his idea for the Russian people and which is approved by the European Commission. This is very important for me for everything I do. The European Commission has to give the approval and we have got the approval. Then when the money for the gas is swapped over in euros, then there's another Conto, it's called K Conto in the bank, and the bank is transferring the euros into rubles from one conto to the other. Who chooses from that rate? Pardon? Who chooses the exchange rate? 
could, could German utilities be paying more? No, Do the uh, Russians it's, choose? It's the bank that does it. So from my point of view, it's just uh, um, face-saving for Putin. And uh, as I think the European Commission had this, has the same opinion because they approved this way. And they used the German, most of the German companies, they used old contos they had uh, from foreign days. And so therefore, I think this is not... This is not uh, a bridge of uh, sanctions, but it's within the sanction system. You emphasize the point that the EU approved. Just because they approved, does it make it morally right? Particularly those that are saying you are paying on Putin's terms. It may be Putin face-saving, but you're allowing him to save face. Well, actually, the world is more complicated. When I was in the US some weeks ago, this was the days when the U.S. government decided on a ban on oil. Right. And they said to me, but we don't want you to do the same as we are doing because then the world oil price will explode. So we are doing something, and I translate, to be on the moral right side, but we want you to do, this, we want you to do the same because then we have a global problem because the oil price will skyrocket. And um, therefore, so I mean, the things have to be done team. on the ground. It's of, of course, it is that some countries and some in Europe with gas belongs to them, or Germany belongs to them, are buying gas from Russia. But we can't do without it. It took decades to build up the system. Now we're changing the system within weeks. This is astonishing, moving, astonishing, fast moving forward. But without the Russian gas, our industry will collapse. Europe will get into a recession, definitely. It's not a German problem, it's a European problem. If European will collapse, then the world market will collapse. And then who helps Ukraine? No one. Europe, Europe Germany can't. So the things are sometimes more complicated, also morally speaking. All actions have consequences, I think is the point that you're making. One more question on this. Are you confident that, that Russia isn't making money on this? That, that on that exchange between euros and rubles, that... The, the German utilities aren't paying a higher price than was contracted. Uh, well, actually, Russia is making a lot of money. Of course, their energy uh, selling was declining in the, in the last months and weeks, but they have earned a fortune. And all oil companies worldwide have earned a, earned a fortune out of it because with lesser, with lesser uh, sellings, they have uh, gained more profits. Mm -hmm. So... In a, way you, in a way, if you put it like this, that alone the discussion, let's not say the American ban on oil, has helped Putin to earn more money. So, so crazy the world is. Which does not mean that we shouldn't do a ban on oil, because morally speaking, you are right. I, I don't like Germany to pay money to Russia, to Putin. So we have to move away just because we, we, we want it. We, as moral citizens of this world, we have to help the Ukraine. But do we harm Putin? Well, there you can have second thoughts. And also the ban on oil the US has done has not harmed Putin in any way because the price for the oil went up and uh, therefore he earned with, 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 with lesser sellings more wages. The question of morality came up a number of times. Um, the economy minister conceded that next winter is going to be a challenging one for, for much of Europe as it struggles to meet its energy demands with less Russian oil and gas. But he did say, as you heard briefly there, recession, not inevitable. There are choices. But he clearly struggles with the dilemma of taking a moral stand against Moscow while Germans also grapple with rising prices. 
He believes it's ultimately impossible to stay neutral in the Ukraine war, but he also believes in pragmatism in the months ahead, and that's going to be paramount. Just listen to this. I think there's no problem if you do what you can for the better. If you're waiting for perfection, then you wait for ages and nothing is going to happen. So sometimes politics is about making the lesser worse decision. This sounds like cynical, no, but it's, it's, the, it's the way the world moves. And if you are in politics, it's always two sides of the story. So if you always try to think about it, rationalize it, as you said it, and take the lesser worse side, then this is the best way to, 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 to work yourself out of the problem. Important context there, I think, from the German economy minister as global leaders face gut-wrenching economic political and geopolitical decisions on Ukraine and beyond. Now, a Russian diplomat with over 20 years service is quitting in open protest at what he calls Russia's aggression, aggressive war in Ukraine. The Kremlin's response, the veteran diplomat, is, quote, no longer with us, he is against us. Boris Bondarev announced his resignation on LinkedIn, describing an environment of increasing corruption and saying the leaders who waged the war, quote, want only one thing, to remain in power forever. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, and uh, he was based in Geneva, and I know you've, you've just landed there. What more do we know about this man? Do we know where his family is? As he openly said in that post on LinkedIn, he knows he's a traitor now, or considered a traitor. Yeah, he, he knew that his actions yesterday were going to leave him exposed to any potential retribution from the Kremlin. And their words so far have not been encouraging, as to be expected. He is not with us. He is against us. He is against the uh, the sort of the, the 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 sort of wider political and public sentiment of Russia. That's what Dmitry Peskov, uh, uh, President Putin's spokesman, uh, said. Um, he's been Boris Bondarev has been very critical of both President Putin and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Of President Putin, he accuses him and, and others, he said, who led the country into the war of wanting to live, um, you know, a grand lifestyle in pompous, tasteless villas. And if you think about it, this strikes at the very language uh, or, or mirrors the language that was used by the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, uh, shortly after he was imprisoned about two years ago when he exposed what he said was one of President Putin's very large um, and ostentatious palaces in Russia. The Kremlin denied that, of course, at the time. But um, it, what, what this diplomat is doing here is landing some very significant diplomatic blows and public relation blows on on the Kremlin is saying, look, look at what some of these oligarchs are, uh, are sailing around the world in in their yachts, comparable in cost and size uh, to the Russian Navy. He said these are leaders who will who will spare no Russian lives, who will sacrifice Russian lives for their own aims of staying in power. Uh, and that, you know, broadly speaking, even for Russians who, uh, you know, who are, who are patriotic, they know these tr these stories about President Putin and his luxurious palaces. They know themselves um, how much President Putin cares little for them. So there's resonance there. Um, but the but the notion that he spoke about that 
This is uh, an aggressive war against Ukraine and against the world and crimes as well against the Ukrainians and against Russians. And Bondarev said the reason these are crimes against Russians, because what President Putin is doing essentially extinguishes the possibility of, of a free and prosperous Russian society going forward. And this is why he's decided to step aside from his position and very critical, as I said, of Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, saying that he is no longer interested in diplomacy, is interested in warmongering and hatred. And that also is likely to ring some familiarity bells, if you will, with other, other Russian diplomats. Great to have you with us. Nick Robertson there. Thank you. Plenty more to come from the World Economic Forum and beyond. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. U.S. stock market starting the week off strong. Be careful saying that. The rally may be short-lived, though, too. Uh, let me give you a look at what's uh, taking place, as we can see here. There you go. We're down some 1.7% on the Nasdaq. The stocks are S&P 500 down some 1%, so we'll see how it goes. There are lots of things to discuss here, and I'm happy to say we're joined by the founder of Carlisle, David Rubenstein. Great to have you with us. Now, everything just went wrong there, as always happens with live TV, which is a real shame, but you know that better than most. We were just going to play a clip of one of your panels yesterday, and I just want to play that now, and then we're going to get you to comment on it. Let's just, uh, let's just watch this, please. Over the last 25 years, we've had at least three crises that are worse than this. The bubble burst of the early part of this century, the uh, COVID problem, and the Great Recession. They were all far worse than where we face right now. And I think the, the people in the, and responsible for the government and the economies recognize the challenge we have. People are on top of it. And I don't think it's going to be the crisis that we've experienced in the last 25 years in any of those three instances. It'll be a mild banana if there's a banana. <laughs> Now, there are lots of completely banana things going on in the world at this moment and beyond, and people, of course, too. I suppose we should give some context on why you were using banana, not our word, of course, which is recession. Well, when I worked in the White House for President Carter, his inflation advisor once said that we were heading into a recession, and President Carter called him into the Oval Office and said, I'm running for re-election. Don't use the R word. It scares people. The inflation advisor, Fred Kahn, said, what should I say? Carter said, whatever you want, just don't use the R word. So he used the word banana, recognizing reporters wouldn't put in a headline, Carter's inflation advisor thinks we're heading into a banana. <laughs> um, so I said yesterday that I don't know if we're heading into a banana, but it's obviously uh, a complicated economic situation and the economy slowed down a bit, in part because of the war in Ukraine and par partly because uh, inflation has been fairly high even before Ukraine. I think what my viewers, and I hope they'll notice, is the difference between your tone and perhaps someone like the IMF chief that said, you know, this is the sort of biggest threat or challenge that we've faced since the, since the Second World War. And admittedly, there's a lot going on, food crisis, energy crisis, sort of a lack of certainty about where we're headed. And, and you mentioned the war. But why are you on a relative basis so calm? Because you have a, 
unique sense of what's going on in the world with businesses all over the world. Is it just not as bad as perhaps well, we fear? Well, maybe it's because I'm so old. I've lived through so many crises that I don't get as excited as I used to get. Uh, the IMF uh, <laughs> chief is a very talented person, and I agree with her on so many things. I think what she was really referring to is uh, the war in Ukraine is a tragedy, the likes of which we really haven't seen in 50 years or something like that, or at least since uh, the Holocaust. And that's what I think she was referring to. Mm. The economy is, is, is troubled because of that in part. I think a lot of her uh, concern was relating to the war. But I do agree that the economy does have some challenges around the world, in part because inflation's higher than we'd like it to be. Growth is slowing down in China and in Europe, in part because of the war, in part because of supply chain issues and related things. And interest rates are going up and it always declines uh, growth. But you think there have been three worst crises even just in the last in the last 25 years? Well, in the last 25 years, I think the market had a gigantic crisis in 1999 and 2000, the tech bubble burst. And then we also had COVID as a big crisis as well, and then the Great Recession. So I think those three things were much bigger economic challenges than I think we have today, though it's a very serious economic problem. I don't want to make light of it. No. But I, I don't think today we are yet at the point where we're having a recession or where we're having a great recession. So do you think the if we bring it back to, to stock markets and what we've seen in terms of a, a border correction, it's not just about stocks, it's, it's far more broad than that. Have we overreacted? I mean, things always overreact. They undershoot, they overshoot. Markets always overreact on the upside and overreact yeah. on the downside. So if you're going to be paying attention to the stock market every day, you can you know, <laughs> lose your sanity. So I'd say that you have to recognize that markets uh, get uh, overexcited, let's say, on the up and down side. Right now, I think the market's probably overcorrected on the tech side on the upside because the tech uh, prices were so high, they may have overcorrected a bit. There might be a good time to buy some things at the bottom now because I don't think we're going to go much lower in some of these tech companies. You know, we're going to speak to the, the chief of the World Food Program later. I mean, he's talking about a potential global crisis in terms of food. You mentioned the cost of living crisis with inflation going higher. We've got central banks perhaps grappling with how they tackle that and even the way that they tackle that causes pain, particularly for the, for the poorest in the world. I can understand some of the fear, hysteria, concern about tackling these problems? Well, remember, when we've had great financial crises before, the Great Depression, the Great Recession, you've had the central banks that didn't have a lot of capacity, and you had uh, banks that didn't have a lot of capacity. Now the banks have a fair amount of capacity, and the central banks have a fair amount of liquidity, so I, I'm not that worried about that problem. And so where do we go from here? Well, of course, if I knew, I would be... Uh, uh, a lot uh, happier. <laughs> okay, good. But I I, nobody really else. knows. But I, I do think that uh, we are in a situation where we have to be very cautious. The Federal Reserve is very cautious. And I don't think we're going to know where we're going to head, whether we're going to go into a banana or something close to banana for quite a while. But we shouldn't obsess over it. Remember, uh, we've had bananas lots of times, and we'll have them again in the future. I think we should worry more about uh, the human rights problems we now have in Ukraine. That's a right. much greater concern for a lot of people around the world. I think in Davos now, more people are worried about Ukraine, I think, than I, anybody would have expected a year or so ago or before the war uh, started. And now Ukraine is the central issue people are talking about here. Mm. The economy is the second most important issue, and people are concerned about it, but everything is through the prism of Ukraine. Do you think people get fatigued with Ukraine? Well, not the people who were living there and not no. the people who were uh, suffering from it and people who have relatives there. They're not fatigued by it. Clearly, uh, the press is putting a lot of attention in it, but I think it deserves attention. If we'd had more attention on the Holocaust, maybe we wouldn't have so many people killed. Right. So I do think it's, it deserves the attention it's getting. Yeah, and the press have, in particular have to keep focusing on it. You know, one of the things that you've been asked about a lot, and I think it plays to the volatility that we've seen and, and the, the market losses is, is crypto. And you can tell me what your view is on this 
I mean, Christine Lagarde coming into this said it's worthless. I mean, it's not worthless. There is some value. It could go lower, I guess, is the argument. What do you make of it in general as a sector? And then we can talk about perhaps what it means from here on out, particularly given what we've seen in terms of sanctions. Well, clearly there's been too much speculation in crypto. A lot of people jumped into it not knowing what they're really getting into. But I don't think it's going to go away. There's too much interest in it, particularly from younger people and from people around the world. And right now, because of what's happened to the Russian oligarchs, right. a lot of people are saying, wait a second, maybe somebody will come along and take my assets away. So I want to have something that people can't take away. The government doesn't know what I have. Rightly or wrongly, I think that's a perspective that a lot of people around the world have. And also younger people like the enjoyment of it. It's like gambling for them. And like gambling is attractive to people. Some people find buying crypto attractive. That doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. You shouldn't put too much of your net worth into this area. Rightly or wrongly, do you think in what we've seen with the financial sanctions on Russia that in some way the potency, the power of the US dollar um, has been laid bare? In, in a way it's been weaponized and for countries around the world that are less friendly with the United States, perhaps don't agree all the time with the United States, do you think crypto in some form for them offers some degree of autonomy from the traditional financial system and diversification because I've certainly had conversations in different nations or with officials in different nations that say we're looking at it in a different light now. Well, remember, all currencies uh, eventually get devalued a bit because inflation eventually will devalue a currency a fair bit and probably a U.S. dollar will go down over the next 15 or 20 years by some amount of money. That's fairly predictable based on the past. So I think people, younger generation, people say, well, you guys, my generation, have devalued the dollar by borrowing too much and by not worrying about deficit spending and so forth. So maybe I'll have something that isn't quite as dependent on government decisions to spend too much money. There may be some of that. But I do think that younger people have a different perspective. And I think when you ignore what younger people are doing, mm. it's a mistake. The great uh, technology developments we've had in the last 25 years were spawned to some extent by young people inventing things and by younger people than them actually going ahead and using them. So when smartphones came out, personal computers came out, when shopping over the internet came out, who was it leading the, the charge? It was younger people. So when younger people have something they're interested in, I think people my generation shouldn't ignore it. That, that's, that's not to say you should put all your money in crypto, and I'm not recommending that, but you should recognize that it's not something that is going to go away. I think the genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier that you'd be a lot happier if you could almost see around corners. Um, but you don't build a business the size of the business that you that you have and, and, and wealth, whatever it is, without being able in some degree to predict or to see around corners or to be very lucky, maybe a little bit of, of everything. A lot of luck. Yeah, well, um, where are the blind spots today that, that do worry you? Well, I worry about the U.S. debt. We right now have $31 trillion of debt, and I think other governments have a lot of debt. And at some point, that's going to be paid off in higher interest-bearing uh, debt than we've had the past couple of years. The deficits, as well as the debt, is also very high. I also worry about the growing income inequality. What yeah. COVID has done is it's taken people that don't uh, have educations, that don't have uh, jobs that are uh, very good jobs, and, uh, they, and, and children that don't have uh, Internet access. They, they are falling further behind. So a lot of people have fallen into a gap now that they're not going to escape from for some time. And COVID is still with us. Remember, in the United States, about 40% of the people haven't been vaccinated. Yeah. And there are new strains coming all the time. And so we're going to live with this for a couple years at least. And as a result, people who are hurt by COVID, who don't have the kind of jobs that enable them to keep working this way, are falling further and further behind. The income inequality problem is a bigger problem than it's been in many, many years in the United States. Yeah, we've actually not talked about that enough here. There's, there's a lot to deal with. David, you reminded me when you came on that you were our first ever guest 
on this show. So um, thank you. And well, I enjoyed it, again. and uh, congratulations on your success. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break. Up next, global leaders warn that Russia is wielding hunger as a weapon. We'll speak to the head of the UN's food program, David Beasley. Stay with us. Thank you, David. Welcome back to Davos, Switzerland. The World Economic Forum has made the food crisis one of its top agenda items, and the message seems to be getting across. Ursula von der Leyen accusing Russia of wielding grain and hunger as a weapon, and the Polish president warning of a refugee crisis unless Ukraine's food exports resume. One of the most passionate responses has been from David Beasley, head of the World Food Programme. He joined me on a panel and warned, this is a crisis for everyone. Over the next 10 to 12 months, we probably will have a significant, as we are having, a pricing problem. But because of the fertilizer issues that we're facing, the lack of production, not just in Ukraine, but in North America, South America, Africa, Asia, because of droughts and many other factors, we very well could have a food availability problem that's not going to impact just the poorest of the poor, it's going to impact everybody. Joining us now, David Beasley, Executive Director of the UN World Food Programme. David, great to have you with us. You are everywhere in Davos. Everyone's talking about your message, and it is about the short term. It's about addressing the issues that we face today in, in Ukraine and, and Russia and beyond. But I think also vital the trajectory that we're on if we don't take action on many things, the science, the, the access to food today and beyond. You know, before Ukraine, we had a, a global crisis that was percolating and moving forward. And just when you think it can't get any worse, bam, the breadbasket of the world has been turned into the bread line, the longest bread line in the world, a nation that feeds 400 million people. And you pull that food off the market, you are compounding, exacerbating what were already high commodity process, pricing, fuel pricing, shipping costs. And my gosh, we're now talking about 325 million people not going to bed hungry, marching to starvation. And out of that, 49 million in 43 countries are knocking on famine's door. And what that means, if we don't reach that 49 million, you will have famine, you will have destabilization of nations, and you will have mass migration. The conditions now are much worse than the Arab Spring of 2007, 8, and 9. I mean, hungry societies break down. I think that was one of the, the messages. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world. This is a long way from a lot of people that are here in Davos, but it's coming. I think that's the message too. This situation is going to widen and widen if we don't take action today. Well, you know, already because of the increase in demand of the problems, the number of beneficiaries that are in need of great help, we are already cutting 50% rations, in some places zero rations, for millions of people around the world. What do you think they're going to do? I mean, what would any mom and dad do? I mean, they're going to flee. They're going to leave. They're going to destabilize. In the Arab Spring of 2007, 8, and 9, you had over 48 nations that had political unrest, riots, and protests. We've already seen what's happening in Indonesia, Pakistan, yeah. Peru, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. What happened in Chad, Burkina Faso. Molly, that's just a sign of the things to come. So we're going to have a food pricing problem over the next 12 months. But after that, on top of that, will be a food availability problem if we don't address these issues right 
now. And there's so much in there as well. And as you've said, and I think that resonated with, certainly with our audience, where you said, look, I'm, I'm effectively stealing food from the hungry to give to the starving. And th- those are the kind yeah. of decisions that you're making on a, on a daily basis. And you're on the front line of the crisis. And actually, the World Food Programme should be the last line of defence and not the first person that's, that's called upon in order to, to tackle some of these challenges. But there are also critical questions that we have to ask about sanctions. We had President Zelensky making another impassioned plea for, for maximum sanctions. And tough conversations that you and I have had with, with big companies that provide fertiliser and they're being lambasted for continuing to work with Russia. And there are no easy solutions here. But I want you to explain to us what happens if we don't have access to to Russian fertiliser, if we don't get access to Russian grain too, never mind opening the ports in Ukraine. You know, we'll let the politicians make the political decisions, but... There's bigger wars. what we try to say is, please understand, when you make decisions, there are consequences. And make certain that you don't do more harm to yourself than to the country you're trying to sanction. So, for example, we know we can't produce the food we need to feed the world without fertilizers. In Russia, Belarus, this region produces 40% of the base products for fertilizers. So the world's got to figure that out because right now we've got droughts around the world. We've got fertilizer pricing that's out of, roof, out of the roof because of fuel and then the lack of availability of fertilizers. So we've got to deal with that issue very, very strategically because all of these things are coming together for a perfect storm. And, you know, what breaks your heart is that there's $430 trillion of wealth on planet Earth a day. And when we're asked, when we don't have enough money, or the access we need, we have to choose which child eats or doesn't eat, which child lives or which child dies. That, no child in the world should go to bed hungry, much less die because of the lack of access for, for food. You said we have to keep the politics out of some of these decisions, and we can, but I think we do have to go to the heart of it when we talk about pleading, the pleading that you've done to Russia, to the world, to say, look, we have to open these ports, we have to get food out, we need food corridors. Mm. And we're, we're hearing it now from politicians too. We can talk about what Putin's trying to achieve here, what his legacy is or isn't. But I think one of the most powerful messages that that you gave me on that panel, too, was saying, you know, Putin needs to understand at this point and the world needs to be saying that perhaps what Putin's legacy is going to be, if we're not very careful at this moment, beyond the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine is is global famine. How about that for a legacy? No, you know, I think the last thing any leader on planet Earth wants to be seen as the leader that created famines around the world. And if we don't get those ports open, it literally is a declaration of war on global food security. So I, I would like to think that if Mr. Putin has any heart at all, he would like, I get it, I understand it, let's open up those ports so that children around the world don't starve to death. I'm begging and pleading, please, let's open up these ports, regardless of your views about Ukraine, at least have some, some heart for the rest of the world. Yeah. Even if he hasn't got a heart, again, we come back to what his CV and what his legacy looks like. And if it, even right. if it's that that you have to appeal to, um, we're trying to do it. Do you think we're finally connecting the dots? We can't address issues like climate change without addressing issues like food security. Our food systems around the world contribute to what a third of greenhouse gases. Nature. We saw the beauty of our nature revealed as a result of COVID, the damage that we're doing in terms of biodiversity, contributing to those kind of risks. Are we finally connecting the dots that if you address one crisis, you actually address others too, and actually we can work together more efficiently? Yeah, you you know, where the tragedy comes, the treasure of opportunity to do some great things. And the world is facing truly a food security crisis immediately and long-term. And if we're struggling now with a world population to feed of 7.7 billion. What do you think is going to happen when we got 10, 12, 
13 billion on top of climate impact that we know is going to be resonating around the world. And so we've got to take advantage of this moment to bring everyone together. And, and you and I talked about this. In my opinion, the media sort of neglected the food security for several years. But now everybody, because the media is giving it the attention I think it deserves. And now the leaders are like, wow, we didn't realize it was so bad. So thank you for helping us alarm the world because I do believe, I'm an optimist, in spite of all this, we've got solutions and we can get it done. Yeah, and they have to be global solutions too. I mean, China, we can learn lessons from how China's tackling this as well for their own country. So as complicated as the geopolitics are, on this thing in particular, we have to we have to work together globally. Well, we do. I mean, as, as I've told leaders in Europe, I said, your problem is not just to the east of you. If you neglect to the south of you, you're going to have mass migration yeah. coming from the Middle East, coming from from Africa. And, and I can tell you, we feed 130 million people on any given day. People don't want to leave home. But if they don't have any degree of peace or food security for their children, they would do what any, any mom and dad would do. And so let's make sure we look at this comprehensively because if we do it right, and if we don't do it right, yes, you go have famine, mass migration, and destabilization. And I can tell you from experience, and this is not rhetoric, it'll cost you a thousand times more mm. than it will be to feed a child in Chad, in Niger, in Jordan, in Syria for 25 cents a day. Than a refugee in a, in a country like Germany, for example. $70 a day. I know, and there's the key too. Yeah. It's smart beyond anything else. We can do this. We've got to be focused, David, and you are certainly. Thank you for all the work you're doing. No, thank we appreciate you, you. David Beasley, Executive Director of the UN World Food Programme there. Okay, coming up, a bridge between China and global capital markets and beyond. How the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is encouraging more international investment. That's the mission here in Davos. We'll talk about it next. Thank you. Welcome back once again to the World Economic Forum here in Davos. And last time delegates gathered here in 2020, China was a major attendee. COVID was hardly mentioned. To be fair, it was mentioned in the middle of the week and all things changed. But this time around, the Chinese are barely represented as COVID concerns limit travel. The highest ranking official here is the climate change special envoy who attended a forum with his US counterpart, John Kerry, earlier today. One person that came here working to attract international investors is the head of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. He plans to open new offices in the US and Europe, saying Hong Kong continues to connect China with the world. Joining us now is Nicolas Zagazin. He's the CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. Great to have you on the show. What a battle, yep. I have to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have set yourself a challenge. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about opening offices and, and what you hope to achieve. Well, I mean, it's, it's part of our purpose. Our purpose is to make sure that we're connecting East and West, that we can capture the flows between East and West to create more prosperity for all. So part of that is making sure that we're close to our clients. It's, and especially with COVID, it's been really hard to operate without being able to move around. So one of the key things that we want to do is to make sure we're closer to our clients and to that end, we plan to offer open offices in the US and open offices in Europe as well, just to be close to investors. If we attract more investors, we'll attract more capital, we'll attract more companies that want to list in our venue. If we talk about the market cap yeah. of international companies right mm -hmm. now on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, yeah. we were just discussing yeah. it off air. Yeah. 
5%? Somewhere around there, yeah. How high can you get that? Well, I mean, right now we have about 200 companies out of 2,500. I mean, what we want to do is to increase it as much as possible. I mean, it's I mean that's <laughs> in an ideal world, but you're, you're, the proposition here has actually never been more tough. You can, yeah. you can defend that, but you're actually agreeing with me, and I, I right. think you're right to agree. I mean, what, what's the advantage for some of these international companies, particularly at this moment, whether it's the geopolitics, the, the regulation, the uncertainty? I, I sort I, of I, see your I, ambition, but I'm yeah. confused. I'll give you one example. Please. Okay, so biotech, for example. Mm. We started a new chapter around biotech companies to allow companies with no revenues to raise capital, to discover all these great drugs that we're seeing and all that. In this period, 95 companies decided to list in Hong Kong, raising over 200 billion Hong Kong dollars, which allowed Hong Kong to become the second largest fundraising hub in the world. So what happens? You have like researchers, you have all types of analysts that are becoming that they know how to analyze biotech companies, and they say, I want to be listed next to companies that are similar to me. I want to do this. Now, we're... But they could do that in the West, too. Well, that's why. But this is the second in the world. And if you think about a place where you can capture all the flows from East and from West, isn't that the best in the world? That you can have, like, the flows from both places? Because right now, 43% of our investors are international investors. Which is a statistic actually that surprised me. So right. I'm glad you mentioned it because yeah. I was going to mention it too. And my, my, my conversation and my, my response to that would be yes, except if we look at the situation in Hong Kong specifically, and certainly the conversations I have with business leaders is that they, they sort of say to themselves now, and whether they're dealing with their people or their corresponding outside in the West, is that they, they sort of consider themselves part of mainland China now. They have to. And so for a company that's looking at the situation in Hong Kong now and as we've discussed in the past, or at least uh, with, with your uh, the, the former CEO, it was like this is a great place to be, and it is the conduit between between the West and East. Except everything changed. Give me the strongest argument beyond being by the security, the safety, whatever it is. Give me the strongest yeah. argument, yeah. and why haven't things materially changed on on that point specifically? despite the trifecta of problems that occurred over the last couple of years <laughs> since we've been here with COVID, with all the geopolitics, right. with the unrest and all that volume in Hong Kong between 19, which was about $87 billion per day. It, last year, it was 167. So you can see what happened in this period. Now, what is happening? People are still interested. This is a very large part of the world. People still want to participate in the market. Mm. And the reality is Hong Kong has free flow of currency. I mean, I mean, it's a Hong Kong dollars. You want to transfer capital in and out of the country. You can do that. Free flow of information. You have institutions that have been there for decades. You have people from all over the world. I mean, I come from Argentina. You see people from like Europe, US, Asia, from a lot of places. So it's a great, uh, you know, place with strong international regulatory environment, mm. very transparent. It's been defined as the freest economy in the world since 1996, including this year. It's the third, including this year by Fraser Institute in Canada. So it's the third most important IFC in the world, according to Global Financial Index, um, I mean, survey. So, so it is an incredibly exciting environment. Now, some, of course, certain things have changed, but I would say that from the commercial side, you still have common law, which is a law that everyone is used to, to, to working. You have institutions that have been there for a long time. You have a talent that it's really hard to put 
in place anywhere else. I disagree else. with that. So. That's, that's a good point. You know what? I was going to ask you about the biggest opportunity in the short term being perhaps delistings from the United States and those companies going back. But I'm, I'm out of time and I know what's right. going to happen. If I ask you that, I'm going to get really told off. Yeah. Let's reconvene, please. Yes, Come, absolutely. You know, we can talk any time about this because it's vitally important. Great. Great to have you with us. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. Julia. Safe travels home. The CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing there. Now, as the Hong Kong exchanges work to convince the world that China is open for business, Airbnb checks out. We're live from Beijing with the context next. Welcome back. Airbnb checking out of China. We need context, though. A source tells CNN it will start shutting down all listings in the country this summer as the government's strict zero-COVID strategy takes its toll. We're told that Airbnb's Beijing office will remain open to support customers in China booking to travel abroad. Sina Wang joins us now. Sina, you know better than most the challenges of getting in and out of China, whether this is a, a business decision due to regulation, due to competition. The toll, once again, of, of zero-COVID, a huge blow. And sources telling us, Julia, that operations for Airbnb in China just became too costly and complex to operate after two years of these lockdowns in China with no end in sight. Dozens of cities in China still under some form of lockdown that is having a critically difficult impact on the economy, a huge social and economic cost this zero-COVID policy is taking in China, and it's damaging virtually every industry, every business in China, American companies included, from Apple to Starbucks, to General Electric, to Amazon, all saying that zero COVID has been squeezing their earnings and Airbnb not immune to that. But they are not completely halting their business. They are going to be shutting down its China listings. It's also going to stop its it's offered experiences in China, but it is going to keep an office here in Beijing with hundreds of employees, and that is going to be focused on the outbound travel market. Now, back in 2016, when Airbnb launched in China, that was seen as such a big growth opportunity for this company. It was an exciting moment because China historically is the world's biggest market for outbound tourism. Chinese tourists, they travel a lot and they spend a lot, but obviously that has been decimated during the pandemic. I went through that. residents to go abroad. And if they even manage to snag one of those extremely limited flights going in and out of China, they face harsh quarantines coming back in. So that has really slammed Airbnb. But beyond all of COVID and the pandemic, Airbnb was having a rough time in China already. For the past few years, sources tell us that stays in China for Airbnb only accounted for 1% of its revenue. It was facing very stiff competition in China from other domestic players. And also, Julia, this is a big deal because... Airbnb was one of the last few remaining American internet companies in China. And with this move, with this exit, it shows that increasing divide between China and America's internet. Julia. And that's the crucial point to, as always, Selena, great job in explaining the context here, I think vitally important. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. And that's it for today's show from the World Economic Forum in Davos. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.